here is singer-songwriter, broadcaster, audio-video artist, entertainment agent, and your host for the Dharmic Evolution. It's the master storyteller himself, James Kevin O'Connor. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome back to the Dharmic Evolution 2020. Yes, I think this is our fifth year. And uh, it gets more and more exciting as time moves on. Before we dig in, please subscribe to this podcast and I'll give you an easy way to do it. Because if you don't subscribe, I'll be, I'll be housebroken. I mean heartbroken. You go to the dharmicevolution.com and just click on your favorite platform. Do you like Spotify, Apple Podcasts? Do you like Stitcher Radio, Overcast? Um, we've got the main ones on our main page of the website, the home page. So just click on and subscribe. This way, the show comes right to your phone without any delay every time we release an episode. Get ready for this guest. You're in for a treat. And get your notebooks out because this is going to be an action packed, full of golden nuggets of information with this wonderful guest that I have on today. And uh, this lady is astonishing. She's got over 30 years of experience in finance. She's the founder of the Women's Money Empowerment Network, an educational research program through a 501c3 organization whose mission is to teach women to become financially engaged so that they can live life on their own terms, receive guidance, and conduct research. A former corporate financial executive, this lady now dedicates her career to training the next generation of ethical, educated, and inspired financial planners. She's also an author, speaker, thought leader, and uh, she has a book out. You can pick it up on Amazon called Gender on Wall Street, Uncovering Opportunities for Women in Financial Services. And by the way, she's also a partner at Stonegate Wealth Management. So if you need help with your financial world, you can reach out to this lady. It's time to strap up your seatbelts because we're taking a ride today on the Dharmic Evolution with Dr. Laura Mattia. So good morning, Dr. Laura. It's a pleasure to have you on the Dharmic Evolution. Good morning. Thank you so much, James. You know, it's great um, to be here. I tell you, it's, you know, the, the serendipity of meeting somebody like this is always the best interview for me because it comes out of nowhere. Like, um, I didn't know about you or your brand, yet you, um, your son and me have had this great relationship for years now. And I've watched him with his business. And when he put up your TED Talk, I was so excited, first of all, because it's like, oh, my mom is doing this. And then I watched it and I was so um, just taken and blown away by what you were talking about because I've seen this um, go on vicariously through people I've known, through women I've known. So um, there's so much to talk about, Dr. Laura. Um, is there any place in particular you would like to start um, or would you like me to just start going through my questions? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I just, I, I am, I, I, I'm going to have to go back to my son and thank him for putting my TED Talk up because as you know, he is so serious about his brand and what he messages to people. And the fact that he put it, just because I'm his mother, um, that's not good enough. It had to be something that resonated with him too. So I'm glad that it resonated with both of you. I was really uh, a it, was, it wasn't the easiest talk to give. Uh, I've 
focused my entire life on building my competency and on providing value to people. And only very, very recently, probably within uh, the past five years or so, have I realized that part of my giving uh, to others has been very much on the intellectual side and on the effort side where I would just do, but not necessarily in opening my heart and sharing my vulnerabilities. And so that TED Talk, really, I was sharing some of my my deepest vulnerabilities. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very, very happy that some people have found some value in it. Because yeah. it's scary. It, it it is you know it is it takes a lot it takes a leap of faith to um to do what you did as as far as exposing your vulnerabilities it's something that's you know it's not very comfortable to do that but i think once you do it uh and you move past that there's a whole world that opens up that you know now you're exposed to it and people come to you and say i'm so happy you did that because look what it did for me it allowed me i got permission now to go ahead and do that also. So I think yes, it's fantastic. I, yeah. I, I actually received some feedback from various, especially women within the finance arena uh, who came to me and said, with all your credentials, with all your experience, you still, honestly, you still have these difficulties, these problems. And I, I said, absolutely, it doesn't go away. You just learn to work with it. Yeah, and was that something do you feel um, Dr. Laura, that you had that um, imprinted on you as a young lady. Is that why you had this sense of uh, you know vulnerability that you had to cover up or protect or whatever it was? Was it something that happened to you at an early age? Was it was it experience mm -hmm. in school, siblings, anything in particular? So. I think, you know, being a mother of four, one thing that I've learned, and I was a psychology major, my undergraduate degree was psychology. And I recall them talking about, is it nature or is it nurture? And as a mother of four, I'm gonna tell you a lot of things are absolutely nature. I have four children that are so very, very different. I brought them all up, taught them the same things, but there are things within their DNA that I can't explain. Right. Uh, and so I do believe that some of my vulnerability perhaps is somewhat in my DNA. I do think I had reinforcing events throughout my childhood that, that reinforced that vulnerability. But there appears to be, and I don't know the science about this. I have not explored this. There appears to be something with, that is gender specific where women do feel less confident in many, many arenas. And I don't know if it's my gender. I don't know if it's my heritage. <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly. But, and then, and then yes, things did occur and every time reinforced it. Right, right. You know, speaking of genders, the book, Gender on Wall Street, uh, folks, it is out there, and you can learn a whole lot um, about this uh, this topic and this subject if you go to Amazon and purchase the book. And by the way, there's only three left, but there's more on the way because I checked last night. So that inventory oh, thing, Thank I'm you. checking out, out that thing. So um, could we rewind a little bit and go back to you as a young lady 
Um, you've got such a rich history of education and things that you've done are like astonishing. I mean, I'm reading your bio the other day and I was like, wow, I mean, you know, CFO, Fortune 500 companies. And um, did you feel when you were in that role, um, let's start with the corporate world, did you feel that was a very tenuous and difficult place to work given um, the politics of Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies and what goes on surrounding careers, especially for women in male-dominated industries? Did, can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. So as a woman executive, uh, it would have been different possibly if I was in more of a clerical or administrative role. But as a woman who was was in management, uh, I definitely was one of the few women in financial management, especially. And I, I did feel that I was constantly being uh, observed and questioned and challenged in everything that I did. I had to absolutely make certain that everything that I did was fully buttoned up and I I knew what I was talking about. I had to be overprepared and make certain that that what I was talking about was in fact true because if it wasn't somebody was going to take advantage of that. So there there was certainly a lot of um, and you know a lot of it's unconscious. Yeah. Even even for people that that want to be supportive of women historically women were not in these roles so people are not used to seeing women in these roles and when they do there is a certain amount of questioning in people's unconscious minds about well gee you know does she belong here is she appropriate is she the right person so i i personally experienced a lot of difficulty and one of the reasons why i wrote that book was that well, I was doing a lot of mentoring for women coming into the financial industry. They asked me specifically, what am I going to contend with when I get into the industry? And I wanted them to understand that they may experience these things and it has nothing to do about them and that they should not allow themselves to get, get thrown off their game or feel intimidated or feel vulnerable because of it. They should just say, well, that's that person's problem is not my problem and I'm going to just continue to push on. So I, I really wanted to, and the, what I did in the book was I brought in my own personal experiences. I brought in experiences from other women and then I brought in some, some journal articles where there is science behind these things that occur so that I could demonstrate that this isn't just an anecdotal experience that I experienced, that there's, especially in the science, thousands of women in a lot of these studies that have gone through these experiences. So when you say there's a science behind it, is, it, is, is this the science of men don't know how to behave around women in power? I mean, what, I mean, it's an yeah, oversimplification, it's men, but, by the way, what's it's that? Not, it's not just men, by the way. So it's the it's whole women culture. also. Okay. So, so, so in our society, we are not used to seeing women in agentic roles. Okay. And in fact, I just had dinner last night with uh, a fairly new friend who happens to be a medical doctor. 
And she was talking and she's young and she's beautiful and she's feminine and all the things that you don't expect to see in a doctor. Right. Uh, and she, she was telling me how she's had some, a, a lot of difficulty and specifically with the women, the nurses, right. uh, there's one nurse that refused to call her doctor would always call her by her first name. And finally she did it in front of another patient. And my friend brought her to the side and said, you're undermining my credibility, my uh, my skills and and everything else. Can can you please call me doctor? And so now the woman comes in every day and says, "Oh well, isn't it doctor?" And she gets very oh, uh, almost. And I and I and I told her, I said, "You really this is her this is her issue. She's yeah. not comfortable." And so some of the literature actually shows that women that have not chosen to pursue more uh, uh, influential roles, if you will, because they've bought into the stereotype of where women are supposed to be, they then get insulted by other women that have chosen to step out of those boundaries. And so it gets very, the whole thing is very, very complicated. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of it stems from just people are not used to seeing women in these roles. So, and so we have to get more women in the roles. So I think we it do. it now becomes part of what we see. And, and we also are thankful that we have people like you out there who are educating people. Um, I want to ask you about your, you know, you're a mentor. You're, you seem to be a coach. You do so many things. And like the TED Talk is so valuable. I mean, that's kind of like um, a, just a great infomercial about what is behind all the things you do. Um, when was it that you, first of all, with the book, when did you decide to write the book? Like what, what, was, the, um, what was the genesis of the idea for, I'm gonna write this book and it's gonna do X for this sector of people. Was it people coming to you, friendships, professionals coming saying, like kind of nudging you or did you just have an epiphany one day and say, I'm, I'm gonna write a book? Yes, so everything, that I've done and do has kind of a history to what how I wound up there. I have been working for the past 20 years in programs, university programs throughout the country to promote more competent and ethical financial advisors in the industry. My hope is that in the future, you will not go to a financial advisor that has not been at least educated in the right types of things. Uh, and hopefully will be more ethical because if you know anything about the finance industry, there's a wide range in the quality of financial guidance and financial advice. So I've been working on these different programs and I was working with Texas Tech University, which is one of the top programs in personal financial planning. And they asked me to work on a program for the ladies, that so the women in the program were feeling very anxious about graduating and going into the finance industry. So I started a class. It was actually a, a special topics class within their program. And I went to find a book and there were no books. <laughs> so I started gathering journal articles and gathering anecdotes and gathering material. And before you knew it, I had created almost a, a workbook that then when I spoke to, I was talking to one of the editors over at Wiley at an event and she said, this is great. We really need to 
to gather this all together and publish it. And so uh, it, it really just kind of happened. It wasn't a, a planned process. It was just, okay, I have all this material. Maybe some other women might benefit from it. I mean, even the TEDx was like, you say, oh, what did you call it? You called it something about- Your, your um, own personal infomercial. infomercial. You called it yeah. an inf yeah. I, I never thought of it that way. I, I mean, I really just did it because I have had similar talks like that that I've done at various conferences and women have come up to me and have said, that was really helpful, that's really valuable. I, I, It's really great for me to know that somebody like you, after everything you've achieved, still feels that way. That gives me uh, a comfort that I'm not alone and that I, I can do this. And so when I heard that, I said, well, gee, you know, maybe I should get the message out that other people might benefit from it. So I never really thought of it as an infomercial. I just think, you know, right now I'm at a place in my life where I really am trying to find opportunities and places where I can help other people have better lives. That's, that's my primary focus in my life right now. You seem to have a very, very busy schedule based on, I checked out your website, and I was really, really fascinated by um, the vetting out process of financial advisors. I thought that was so valuable, because um, I didn't know that, and, and I learned a lot from being on the website, so please go over and check out Dr. Laura's website. We'll give you, give you the links at the end of the show. Um, I wanted to ask you just on the book, when you took this on, um, how did you carve out the time um, and the discipline to sit and write uh, to get this book done? How did that work for you? Well, so if you recall in my TEDx talk, I talk about my superpowers as being perseverance and curiosity. And perseverance right. has absolutely been a fundamental uh concept throughout my entire life. Uh, whenever I felt like I wasn't adding value or I was unworthy or, I, you know, people were going to be critical, I just would try harder. I would just work harder. I would just do more. I am probably, I probably don't think I know anybody that works as hard as I do. This is not necessarily a good thing. I'm not saying that's a brag. I, I'm not sure exactly uh, uh, what people will think of that. It's a fact. I just, I've always worked 60 to 80 hours a week. That's, that's me. <laughs> and um, I, so, so I just continue to work. One of the things that I'm actually struggling with right now and uh, have learned or am finally gaining some insight in over the past five years is that I can add value more from not just my intellect or my, yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. You know, just willingness to whatever anybody asks me to do, but that if I really go to my heart and explore um, how I can open my heart to give that there's tremendous value there and that maybe I need to work on using that more, developing that more, exploring that more and sharing that. And perhaps I can start culling my hours down. But every time I give something up, something always manages to come back on my plate. I, I, it's me. I just don't know how to stop. So Whoa. I just, yeah, at two o'clock in the morning, yeah, you can find me a lot of times two o'clock in the morning in front of my computer. 
Well, perhaps we can get a group rate on the therapy because I have a little bit of the same problem. <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> that so, sounds great. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. How do you, what do you do for, I mean, you got to have some downtime, chill time. You mentioned you're a runner. You were, you were running uh, when we talked last week. You said you just got, got a run in on the beach. Is that, is that a regular thing for you? You're a runner? I, I've always been a runner. Okay. Uh, I've been slowing down a little bit lately, although a run on a beach is just wonderful. And I try to get yeah. at least once or twice a week a good run on the beach. For a while, I was I tried the CrossFit thing with my son's uh, gym, and um, right. that that was interesting. I always I did try to do physical, I definitely some kind of physical activity of some sort, whether it's running or doing lifting some weights or whatever, because it does keep your mind sharp. I, I'm a big meditator. I love to meditate. Um, the more I meditate, the more value. And I started meditating when I was very, very young. My father brought me to learn transcendental meditation when I was 13. Oh, wow. And so I started it um, in my early years and never really fully understood the concept behind it or why I was doing it or, uh, you know, the value that it can bring. But as time's gone on, I've, I've, been able to really understand how much it can affect your life. And so I spend, I do try to find time to meditate and to pray. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that's really very, very helpful for me. Other than that, it's really primarily spending time with, with the people that I love, that my family and um, good friends. Right. So that so that's enough for you. I mean that the, the meditation is so important. I'm the same way. I pray in yoga. So it's like I I just said this is a cool way to do both. You know, it's like I'm getting the yoga yes. workout. I'm doing so. Yes. So um but I think I think any kind of relief or release from the 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 work thing because it, it does get um even though, you know, you seem to love what you do and that's that's my thing too. It's not work for me. It's like I love what I do so much it doesn't matter. I'm up really early and I except for eating and working out, I just work all the time. But but again it's not work. But um when you do get those breaks, I think it does refuel you in some way. Right. Um, um well, it's the concept of being in flow, right? And the idea yeah. that what you're working on is is just your passion and you love doing it. I, you know, everything that I do right now, sometimes compensation comes, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't even matter to me. I'm doing it because I think there's value there. So it's more of a calling than, I mean, of, of course you, you do things in, a, in with pragmatism in mind. We, we all need to pay our bills and so forth. But when, when it is a calling, there's just a higher value that's coming in and going out. It seems like it's you know, there's, there's something more than we even know that is happening, you know? Absolutely. Um, when you made the transition from the corporate world to the space that you're in now, um, how was that transition? Was it like immediate or was it this, did it sort of just kind of like flow into where you are or did you have like a whole plan uh, going on for oh, this? So, so I'm a planner. I am okay. a financial planner. Well, I am a planner and I, ha I have plans and I have a plan. And by the way, I have plan B. If that doesn't work out, I always have a plan. So absolutely. I started out, as I mentioned, a psychology major thinking I was going to go into some kind of counseling profession 
uh, therapy. I was doing a lot of work when I was in high school and college with autistic children. I really enjoyed that. I was trying to find some kind of niche there. And life just kind of didn't work out that way. And I realized that I needed to to make some money to support my family and pay the mortgage and take care of my my first child that I that was born. And I went to the paper and I said, oh, finance and accounting, those are the professions that people are looking for. And I went and I got an MBA in finance and accounting and went, went into the corporate world because I'm a survivor. Right. And I wanted to get that done. When I was in the executive roles, however, as a woman, uh, many times people would, especially the women, would come to me and they would say, I'm in the process of getting a divorce. I need help with the property settlement. Can you help me? I have a 401k. What can I, what should I be doing with it? And they would ask me for financial advice. And I said, this is what I really should be doing because I can help people. I have these financial skills and I can marry them both together. And so that's why I decided to take that shift. Did you feel like when you first started doing this uh, financial planning, um, it's such a it's such a valuable thing for people. I mean, it must have been eye-opening for you. Did you ever have a situation where you had somebody who was you're working with and they were going to kind of they were sort of in trouble and you thought you might lose them, they might just walk away because it was frustrating and then something happened to like bring them back and that and then you and you did something that kind of saved their life financially. Did you ever have any one of those situations? <sighs> What what I primarily have seen is, but so I work as it's called a fee only fiduciary financial advisor. I don't sell any products. I I work for the client. So the client's my boss. It's, nobody else is my boss. Nobody's telling me what to do. And so I really look to help people solve their yeah. And it's not about dying with a big pile of money. It's about understanding the client's life and and their families and all their what they're trying to achieve and how they can use money as a tool to do that so uh because of that business model that i'm in i often get phone calls from people once they are in a horrific situation so a lot of people will seek me out and that's one of the things that i'd like to stop is I, it's wonderful when I can actually help somebody not get into a bad situation. But I, oftentimes what I am doing is troubleshooting and trying to help people make lemonade out of lemons when they've, they've actually had a bad experience. And there have been several experiences that I could talk about where, um, you know, one woman came to me, this was years ago. She was so anxious about working with a financial advisor because her brother was a financial advisor and had really taken advantage of her. I don't believe, honestly, that there are a lot of people that are evil and want to take advantage of people. I think that there are a lot of people that get into this industry who don't know what they don't know, and they give advice that's just wrong. It's just bad advice. They don't have the full understanding of all the various financial strategies or financial products that could be used. And so they only know their limited scope of what they're doing. And so her brother, unfortunately, um, 
was in the annuity sales business and sold her some very bad annuity products that put her in a bad situation because she had a health issue and needed to spend money on her medication and couldn't get access to her. It was just a big mess. And so I helped her unravel that. And she unfortunately got herself, there were other things she had, she was, she had purchased a home with a partner and the partner wound up having a different agenda and helping her just sort all that out. And yes, I mean, she is uh, somebody that we're, she's my, she's my friend. She's, she's somebody that she's my, you know, somebody that I truly, truly care about. And she truly, truly cares about me. And when you develop relationships with people like that in this industry, people don't leave you. They stay with you forever. They want to always have you as a resource uh, because you truly become their trusted advisor. There are a lot of things that I did for her that had even, you know, peripheral financial uh, types of issues around them. They, they were other things that we needed to solve because if we didn't solve them, they were creating risks that could potentially come back and haunt her. But there's a lot of situations like that. And those are the times where you develop these relationships where your clients are your, your friends, you're, you're trusted, you, you trust them, they trust you. And it's much more of a deep relationship. And I love, that's what, why I love what I do is those are the kinds of relationships I want to have with people. Yeah. I was, um, again, with, with your website and understanding fee, can you just explain that real quickly to people so they know what that is? Well, so, so it's, first of all, I sign a fiduciary oath for my clients saying I will always work on behalf of you and only you. I will never take compensation from any other source. So the question is, right. well, how do you get compensated? And uh, so what what I like to do with my clients is try to talk to them about what they're trying to achieve and how they can compensate me. And there's a variety of different ways that can compensate me. Some people, it's a project or it's uh, there's that assets under management model, which can work where if we're helping people with their investable assets, they can pay a fee based upon that, or there's a retainer, but we try to come up with the right solution. Sometimes people will come to me and I'll, and I'll just, they don't really have the financial, the financial resources to adequately, adequately compensate me. And so it, rather than charge them, I just do it for them. And a lot of times they'll come back and they want to give me something. Oh, can I buy you a bottle of champagne or whatever? I said, prayers. I'll always take prayers. Just pray for me. Put that out there. I believe in, uh, in the power of prayer. So, um, I have a couple of people out there that are, that are doing that for me. And that that's great, but it's a way of, you know, how can we make this work so that I'm not always working pro bono for people. And we try to come up with a solution that is a good fit for the client to pay. Right. But I do want to say one thing about that fiduciary thing, and that was something that very much concerns me right now. So I had an MBA in finance accounting, had worked as a controller and a CFO in the industry. I then went back to school uh, to get the the experience or or the 
the educational qualifications to sit for a CFP exam. And then I went back to school several other times to get other certifications. And then I went back and got a PhD in finance, financial planning, which included understanding all the literature and all the science that's out there around economics and finance. And when I give financial advice, guidance, I have to take a step back and say, am I really in thinking of everything that I could possibly think about think about that's out there? Am I doing, am I making the best recommendation? And I have to wonder how other advisors without the level of education, without the level of quite frankly, competence can ever work in a client's best interest or ever work as a fiduciary because you just don't have the tools. You don't, you don't even know enough to be able to make that assessment. You know, the people that are running around and they'll say, oh, I'm a fiduciary. No, you're not. You're not legally a fiduciary and you can't even possibly be one because you don't even know what you need to be to know. So so I think the competency aspects and finding somebody that really has been in the industry, in the finance industry and has studied what should be done, because there are ways of protecting people. You can invest in even this market today um, and and not take on the risks that are associated with the market. There are ways of, of uh, numerous ways of creating a safer way to invest. And when people are trying to guard their nest egg and have enough money for retirement, especially, they can't afford, I, you know, most of my clients are not trust fund babies. They're people right. that have worked really hard and have managed to save some money and they now want to live a good life and and spend time with their families and and do things that they've dreamed of doing all their lives that you know how can they do that feeling confident and having peace of mind if somebody's not helping them understand how to protect and how to appropriately responsibly grow their investments so it's that competency thing it's that ethics component and then there's the idea of not allowing any other, I, not any other source. If I refer a client to an attorney, okay, you don't have the right estate planning documents or whatever, I don't get any kickbacks from that referral. If I right. And I don't want to get kickbacks. I want to choose that attorney because that attorney I know will do the best job for that client. But all of my choices, all of my recommendations are always based upon merit, based upon what I truly believe is the best, not because I'm getting some kind of, oh, you know, trip to Hawaii or other kind of incentive that would make me recommend something. Right. And that's the key. Yeah. Um, do you feel like, I mean, it, you look at some of these statistics out there about the United States and the people's... Um, you know, we're just so uneducated about finance. Oh. From the time we, we step into kindergarten, it's like we learn the wrong, like, I don't say the wrong things, but we're, we're not learning the right things. And, you well, know, people come out- it's a life skill, right? Yeah, they can't balance their checkbooks and they can't, and they don't know what to do. And we just stumble through, you know? And, yes. and you read these reports about people are, the, the, the lion's share of the country has like, like no money. 
to to right. like live on, like to like to saved or anything. So it's right. pretty. And they won't have any money because they don't know how to do. Unfortunately, see, financial literacy is a big problem in our country. Uh, there are there's quite a lot of research actually on uh, this topic. Anna Maria Lusardi and Olivia Mitchell are two researchers who have been prolific in this area and have done numerous studies, and they have shown that. 30% of Americans can answer three basic questions. One question is around compound interest. And when I say basic, I mean, I could tell you the gist of the question is, do you understand that if you're getting 2% um, on $100 and you're getting 2% every year, do you understand that that means that after five years, you'll have more than $102? Right. Uh, really fundamental and yeah. people have problems with that the second question that they ask is around inflation do you understand how inflation if you're making two percent and inflation's three percent do you understand that over time you will be able to buy less goods and services most people can't answer that the third question is around diversification and basically asks, do you understand the difference between a stock and and a stock mutual fund? Do you understand which one would be better? And that's probably the worst. The the amount of people that can answer that question is very, very low. Yeah. Um, but but 30% of the country can answer those three questions. And they've also done this study across uh, the world and have done it in other countries and I found that in other countries where there's financial uh, sophisticated financial markets individuals are better at answering uh, those questions than in the United States young people under the age of 36 are less financially literate older people over the age of 65 are less financially literate women I'm sorry to say this um, because I know some women get insulted. I'm not saying all women, but when we look at the data and we're just looking at thousands of people, women are less financially literate at every single age just because a woman goes to college, which people will say, oh, so many more women are going to college, doesn't mean that she's going to be more financially literate. It's a problem. And because the reason why it's a problem is that people that are financially literate are better at saving. They're better at budgeting. They're better at investing. Uh, it's been shown over and over again. They make better financial decisions, better financial choices. So, right. yes, I, I would love to see us actually incorporate financial literacy even in the high schools. The problem with that, though, is that people, younger people in high schools, even in college, oftentimes don't understand how important it is. So they don't always invest in that human capital and try to really learn those skills. Yeah, it's it's the it's the old adage that there's nothing like investing in you. That's the best investment you can ever make with education. Um, on the on the inflation subject, this I've noticed this for years now that it's the way we do inflation is not by raising prices anymore. It's giving you less products. The cereal companies have been doing this for years. And it's like, this is a big box up on the shelf and it's half filled with product and it gets less and less. And I don't, I don't eat cereal, but I, I noticed more and more people are doing that. And I see it all the time. Portions get smaller and smaller and we don't raise price. We just give you less product. Yeah. 
So it's a really a slippery way. Yeah. There's a price point that they know is competitive in, in their marketplace. And so in order to uh, improve their profit, they simply just put less product in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, a way to do that. And um and products in this country, like it's it's really sad that we don't build much anymore because uh you know, I just moved to, to Tennessee recently and uh right outside of Nashville and and I I sent like just about everything I bought for my home here had to go back almost everything <laughs> two Why? three washing machines three coffee tables broken manufactured wrong like you know oh, quality no. control was horrible and it's just like you know i'm shaking my head going what is going on here can't you can't you buy anything that just comes and it's really good so um so yeah the country is not the same as it used to be but I, i'm getting a little bit off the track i want to talk some more about your brand and the ted talk how did you get the ted talk i think that's really fabulous that you did that because um you know it it's going to help um not only your brand but it's going to help so many people to like dig into like the subject matter of what you're teaching and, and get them interested because a lot of people don't know that they should be interested in this subject because it's really really important um you're going to do another one <laughs> this this was actually my second was it um, oh yes awesome. the first one that i did was trying to inspire women to get engaged in their financial lives so right. so that was really the focus of that and i was trying to get come at some type of angle one of the things that we see is that especially a lot of times women will when they get married they delegate all the financial decision making to their spouse yeah and what that does is that puts them at risk because now they're not building their own financial skill acumen yeah they're they're uh leaving themselves vulnerable and so when something happens and a lot of times things happen because women live longer than men so because of widowhood or divorce or even the problem that i'm seeing down here in florida where uh men will all will start having dementia or other problems and the woman has to step in but she doesn't do money right. uh, it's it's a big problem so so I'm trying to get women to get engaged in financial decisions and in, in the process before it becomes, a, before they're exposed and, and now they're taken advantage of. And that's what we see a lot of times is when a, a woman becomes divorced, especially when a woman be becomes widowed, instantly these individuals who don't mean to do evil things they just don't know what they don't know step in and take advantage of the situation and she's now in, in you know where she thought where she had maybe some proceeds from a life insurance policy that's gone whatever and now she's she has a problem so getting women engaged when they're younger in the financial decision making i i, I always tell them delegate the oil changing in the car, delegate right. the lawn mowing, <laughs> delegate those types of things, but don't delegate these choices, these decisions, because they're so important and you're developing your skills as you pay attention to it. Yeah. Where do you see, um, as, as we're getting close to the end here, I want to ask you about what, what is next for Dr. Laura with all the things you've got going on in your life. And, um, it's just, it's very, um, 
it's exciting like to 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 see what you're doing um do you have any big plans for 2020 as far as doing anything different than what you're doing or are you in the zone now and and every day is just great the way it is (laughs) i i'm always looking at other things Um, one of the things that i'm really really excited about so i started doing uh financial literacy types of programs for women 20 years ago i started uh piggybacking on a program that was out over at rutgers and then their funds, they had a grant and that ran out and started doing some other things. And I've done podcasts and I've done uh, seminars and workshops and di- different types of things like that and continue to work on that. And I've recently been asked to launch my Women's Money Empowerment Program underneath the umbrella of uh, a 501c3 organization down here in Florida. And and. I'm very excited about the program because we're going to have three prongs to it. We're going to have the educational program, the podcast, the webinars, uh, those types of things. We're going to have, secondly, an actual hotline where women can call in for free, talk to a certified financial planner, discuss a problem or or, or a question that's currently on their mind and get some guidance or advice. And then the third element is to apply for some grants because we have some research that we've been doing around women and money. Uh, I just completed and submitted for journals two pieces on widows and money. And they're very, very interesting, uh, interesting pieces of work that I think could potentially assist policymakers and others in what needs to be done to support women when they find themselves exposed and unable to make good decisions. So that is very, very exciting to me. And so that's, you know, as I said, I take things off my plate and then something else comes. That's my my new project that I'm very, very excited about. Sounds like another two businesses, two podcasts and a couple of TED Talks (laughs) and a book. Of course, a book. Perhaps. Who knows? (laughs) Dr. Laura Mattia, this was really, really wonderful. I'm so glad you came on the Dharmic Evolution to to talk about this subject. There's so many people that um, are going to be blown away by this interview because it's just not knowing about what you don't know. And and it brought a lot of clarity to me. I love the website. Folks, go over to the website. You're going to love what you see on there, all the things that Dr. Laura does. So... Um, Dr. Laura, just want to thank you and wish you all of the love, luck, and success and God's blessing. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And right back at you. I wish you the best as well. What a way to say Happy New Year 2020. Superpowers of perseverance and curiosity. Money as a resource is power. Gender on Wall Street, you can pick it up at Amazon. Opening her heart and sharing her vulnerabilities. Hey, do you need a speaker, author, an advisor, an advocate? Well, get over to lauramattia.com. That's lauramattia, M-A-T-T-I-A.com. And you can pick up any of those services from the wonderful PhD, Dr. Laura. 
I hope you guys came away with some pearls of wisdom as I did on this this wonderful interview to start off the new year with Dr. Laura. Um, Please support her by going to her website. And if you do need help with your finances, go over to Stonegate Wealth Management. All the links are in the show notes to connect with everything Dr. Laura. Hey, if you guys haven't gone to the, the uh, Dharmic Evolution Facebook community page, you got to go over there and sign up. Uh, just stop in. And um, we had so many people over the last two weeks uh, sign up and join us. And it's all about supporting authors, speakers, thought leaders, singer-songwriters around the world. Okay, if you have a TED Talk, um, are you performing somewhere? Are you speaking somewhere? Do you have a new book coming out? Do you have a new album coming out, a photo shoot? Are you playing a gig somewhere? Do you have a new video? Post it up there on the Dharmic Evolution Facebook community page and watch the world kick in and start supporting your artistry. That's it for me today. I'm your host for the Dharmic Evolution, James Kevin O'Connor, singer-songwriter, audio-video artist, master storyteller, and international talent agent. So until the next time when we meet again, I'll either see you on the socials I see you from the stage.